Howdy, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. No bagel drama this week. Everything's 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 kosher, um, including the bagels, I imagine. Um, stands to reason. Stands to reason. Uh, all right, so uh, we, we have a bunch of movies because we didn't do one last week, so I got a bunch to get through, so I'm just going to jump in. It's weird doing the movie journals uh, when I watch a bunch of movies and there's like a week or two off because then I have to think like I have to like get back in the headspace of something I watched two weeks ago <laughs> and comment on it. Yeah, you know. Um, but I watched uh, uh, a, a Roger Corman film I've always wanted to see um, called A Bucket of Blood. Have you ever seen that? Oh, I've heard of it. Yes. So this is uh, great things. One of the few Dick Miller starring roles. Wow. Um, it's a it's a dark comedy in which. Um, uh, that's it, kind of a um, uh, satire, maybe, or at least a parody of like beatnik culture. Okay, where Dick Miller plays—he's uh, like a busboy, essentially, at like a beatnik cafe. Is he a beatnik? He wants to be. Okay, is the thing. Somehow, I just can't. Because there are all these like poets and artists and stuff, right. and he wants to be an art artist. Okay. He doesn't want to be an art. He wants to be an artist. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's basically what's funny is that it was shot like back to back, even using some of the same sets as the little shop of horrors. Oh, neat. And has a lot in common in, in little shop of horrors. Seymour keeps killing people to feed the plant in this one. He finally gets some success as an artist when he, uh, finds or possibly he either finds a dead cat or possibly has murdered a cat. He's kind of insane, so we it's not entirely clear. And yeah. then he covers it in clay and brings it in as a as a like a war, like a sculpture. Oh, all right, and everyone. So it's like House of Wax. Um, I guess yeah, but um, but he's not evil. He's just insane. Oh, Do you know right. what I mean? Like, there's sure. a different like. He's still like the plucky young go-getter. Yeah. He just starts by killing a cat and people, and then it of course elevates to him killing people. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of little shop in there. Uh, yeah, but it's a, it's a comedy uh, because it's surrounded with these ridiculous beatnik types. And again, Dick Miller just being guileless through the entire thing. Uh, it's a lot of fun. All right. Um, all right. Moving on. I'm going to, I've actually seen, I've seen a ton of movies. I've been watching some of the Oscar shorts. I'm only going to talk about the documentaries, Okay. but I think I'll hold that off for now. And I will talk about another thing, uh, another older movie I watched. Uh, I've been hearing a lot in in recent years when, because there's been more talk about, um, uh, you know, our friend Mariah, uh, Mariah did the 52, the, you know, a year with women mm-hmm. watching only women and when I still try to do, um, she watched only movies directed by women for a year. I should clarify for people who didn't know that. Um, and I, I, I try to do the 52 films by women every year. Now, uh, I have yet to actually succeed because I, uh, suck. Um, but there's been a lot of, more how many talk. did you see? Uh, last year, mm-hmm. I think I saw 49. That's not terrible. Nah, it shouldn't be that difficult is the thing. It shouldn't be, but you know, that's, I mean, come on, like how many Nancy Myers movies can you watch? <laughs> there's lots of, it's mostly that, right? Um, yeah, there, uh, there's, uh, you know, there's your Anne Fletcher. I kicked off this year by watching the guilt trip Anne Fletcher's the guilt trip underrated movie, by the way, that's what I've heard. Yeah. Underrated movie. Anyway, um, 
Anyway, so there's been, uh, the name that I keep hearing that I'd never seen any of her films is Dorothy Arzner because she was working in the 1930s and I guess 40s okay. at a time when it was even more rare than it is today for there to be, especially in Hollywood, you know, in the system there, um, a, a female director. And so I watched my first ever Dorothy Arzner movie, which is 1930, 1937's The Bride Wore Red, which is a Joan Crawford movie, okay. which is another enticement to me because I really like Joan Crawford. Um in which I guess it's sort of a pretty woman type of, uh, situation. Um, I guess in the source material, it's more literally a pretty woman type of situation in that she's a prostitute in that Mm -hmm. in this, she's a cabaret singer. I guess they, Hollywood was like, we're not gonna, (laughs) you know, we're not gonna have a, a prostitute Pygmalion or whatever. Um, (laughs) uh, so she's like a cabaret singer. Um, and, uh, this rich guy who's like, uh, kind of slumming it and he's having this. So the movie starts with this great series of scenes of these, like this older rich guy and this younger rich guy having just a big party night. They're gambling, they're drinking, they're like bar hopping. And at some point they end up at like this slummy little like tavern mm-hmm. and they're having this conversation the whole time. The older guy is like, you and I were, you know, uh, you know, as the saying often goes now, uh, like born on third base, you know, that, that saying, I don't like, people who were born with if you were born into a rich family like you were already oh, okay you know what i mean like right uh, he doesn't say born on the third base but that's that's a more modern way of saying what he's this the older guy's argument is like uh you know this guy who's cleaning up the floor the guy who's dealing at the roulette table or whatever like these people aren't any lesser than us or don't have any like it's all just luck into how you were born and the other guy's argument is no you know years of breeding make us different a different class or whatever (laughs) yeah um and so he comes up with uh, the older guy unbeknownst the younger guy comes up with this idea he's gonna he finds this cabaret singer he gives her a fake name and a bunch of money and says go stay at this fancy hotel where this other guy is going to be vacationing for the next couple weeks you know, here's pretend you're this person, you're a blah, 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 you're, you know, daughter of an admiral, something like that, you know, uh, and woo him. And then he'll learn the air of, of his ways, I guess. So that's, that's the whole premise of the movie. And then she goes up to the, the cabin. And so it becomes kind of a love triangle because she's supposed to be wooing this rich guy. Um, but she's also kind of falling for the, uh, the mailman, um, in this small town mm-hmm. at the same time. Uh, and it's, it's really delightfully done. Uh, a lot of great, um, performances. The mailman is played by, um, Oh, I forget his name, but he, uh, how do we do this? Sorry. I'm still figuring out, um, letterboxd letterboxd. Yeah. Mm. French tone is his name. Oh yeah. He was um, in, uh, mutiny on the bounty. Okay. Uh, which one? The 30s one? Yeah, the 30s yeah, one. Not the yeah. si- I've never seen the 60s one. That's the... Neither have I. It's... Clark Gable, Trevor Howard? Um, uh, no, not Clark Gable. It's uh, Marlon Brando. Clark Gable is the 30s one. Okay, so I've seen the Clark Gable one. Yes. I have not seen the Trevor Howard Brando, Brando one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Trevor Howard to be, to be mentioned later, actually. Oh, interesting. Um, anyway, so it's really good. I do think my only... I, I was like... 35, 40 minutes into Broadway red. I was like, this movie's so good. Like an hour later, I was like, it's kind of, this is getting kind of indulgent. Like I mm. think we kind of like realize, okay, she's been seduced by wealthy people's ways. She doesn't want to go back to her life, you know, and that's, what's keeping her from realizing that she's in love with the mailman because he represents. And I feel like it kind of gets to that point. Like I said, 
45 minutes to an hour in and the movie's like an hour and 45 minutes. And so it does seem like the last, the last 45 minutes or so, I guess, uh, there's a lot of repetition just waiting to get to the climax that we kind of know is coming, but it's still, uh, a lot of fun, pretty to look at and, uh, great performances from Joan Crawford and Francho tone. Uh, all right. What's, uh, what did you watch? So, uh, real quick, something that occurred to me when, uh, as you were describing that film is I feel like the term breeding anytime it's, it refers to people, uh-huh. I feel like is bad yeah. one way or another. It yeah. could be racial. It could be a sci-fi thing. Yeah. I feel like it's never worked out great to think in yeah. terms of people you know, and breeding. Jimmy, the Greek thing. You remember that? Uh, no. This what is, is that? Before our time. Okay. Basically, uh, uh, a guy just making a case for why uh, um, African Americans seem to be better at sports than uh, okay. white Americans, and saying it in a very in very animalistic terms that yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, <laughs> rightfully so. I mean, I've heard okay, I have heard stuff like that in regards to like in the horrible days of slavery, like trying to like literally breed breed yes, like literally. big and strong slaves, which is like, okay, I, I don't know if that's true or not, or if it's just a thing that I read, but it's uh, definitely is uh, deeply disturbing, but um, okay. So the f- uh, first film that I watched is David Wayne's a futile and stupid gesture oh. on Netflix. The story of, I've forgotten his name. Um, uh, Ken something, right? That sounds right to me. It feels like a thing I could probably look up. I saw the documentary. Easily. Um, That's right. Yes. What is, uh, what is the name of the documentary again? I can't remember. Yeah. Drunk. Yeah. Stoned. It's, yeah. It's a big. Bloated. Uh, dead. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking it up now. Doug Kenny. Doug Kenny. Okay. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, it's not that good. Yeah. I really wanted it's it to be. Bad. I like David Wayne. Me too. I think I like his sensibilities. And there are moments in the film that it's like solid. That's a that's a really interesting way of addressing it. And they do everything they can to subvert the standard biopic self-destructive thing and they don't. They just hmm. it winds up being the exact thing. And what's more is So okay, did you ever see Lenny? The, no, I never did. about Lenny Bruce. Okay. It's it's interesting, great performance by Dustin Hoffman, but it's tough when you make a movie about co- comedians from 30, 40, 50 years ago because comedy has changed and it's hard to view what they're doing as hilarious, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, as we as we hear about Animal House, which is really funny, and just and and Caddyshack. Uh, okay, I know those to be pretty funny movies. Uh, they're no airplane, but then what is? Uh, which is addressed in the film, by the way. Um, hmm. But when you get a, when you get like all of the old National Lampoon people or Harvard Lampoon people, you know, sitting around and they're like throwing out ideas. The ideas are such. They're so like old time subversive. I don't know if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's like, it's like, ah, uh, like Nazi super women. It's just like, like throwing out all these terms and just putting them together <laughs> and just saying like, right. it wouldn't that be funny to see. Uh, and as I'm just like, I, 
I understand that that's a big deal at the time and that's yeah. really funny at the time. Not unlike when I was watching Lenny where it's like, I'm going to have to approach this as more subversive than timeless. Yeah. Um, and so that's a big, that's a big thing for me yeah. and, and I don't blame the, the filmmakers or anything like that. But, uh, so I think, I think that was a block for me and I think just the main character's story just like, all right, he gets successful, starts doing a lot of drugs. Okay, yeah, okay, I've seen this before countless times, mm-hmm. whether it be, it could be a painter, musician, comedian, it doesn't matter. It's the same story. And that is unfortunate. And again, the way they do try to subvert that is really interesting in certain ways and amusing in certain ways. Um, but I don't know if I'd say it's it's worth watching. Uh, how is Joel McHale? As Chevy Chase. <laughs> it's funny because, of course, he, he worked with Chevy yeah, Chase. Yeah, that's why it's And funny. I think some of that comes through. He's not trying to do an impression. He's trying to just kind of capture a certain air. Uh-huh. Um, I do think okay. they do an interesting thing where Martin Mull plays the old Doug Kenny, which if you oh, know the story, know you know that that is a funny bit of casting and an odd choice. Okay. And when they address it, it's actually quite amusing. Um and so uh, there's a moment where like old Doug Kenny is talking to young, young Doug Kenny and he's like, he goes, Hey, don't worry. In the future, people are really going to like Caddyshack. Actually, it's going to be kind of frustrating, <laughs> like, which as someone who doesn't love Caddyshack yeah. and you're the same way, yeah, it's like, yeah. I thought like, ah, David would like that joke. So it's, it's um, not worth watching. I'm, I was bummed out. It's too bad. Cause you know, just last night, my wife, Natalie and I were talking about uh, our favorite comedies in terms of just like, laughs per minute mm. and we realized that wet hot american summer role models and they came together are all like contenders yeah three of the funniest movies i've ever seen in my life are made by david wayne i don't think i don't think they came together as his laugh out loud funny for me but it's uh, it might be my favorite of those just mm. because it's so so completely conceived yeah um but yeah role models i will laugh at every every day of the week um all right i'm gonna burn through five i'm just like i said because i haven't finished the live action shorts or the animated shorts at the time of this recording okay. so I'll, I'm, I'll save those for the next movie journal um i've only watched the oscar nominated i'm only going to talk about the oscar nominated uh documentaries um okay so i'm going to burn through them one's called edith and eddie which is a uh, touching a uh, very sad and angering or should be a sadder and angry more angering story about a um couple who married very late, like both remarried very late both in their nineties, they met mm. and remarried. Um, but the woman has dementia or some, of some sort. And, um, uh, one of her daughters doesn't approve of the marriage or possibly just wants to kick her mom out of her house and sell the house. Mm-hmm. It's not clear. Um, and that's part of the problem with the movie is that it's not clear. Like the movie doesn't do a good job of just laying the groundwork of understanding like, okay, what, this woman was declared legally like unfit to take care of herself. Like it doesn't okay. say it just sort of like drops you in, in a way that makes, um, everything like that should be like, Oh my God, that's awful. It's more like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyway, that's called Edith and Eddie. The next one, which I really loved is called heaven is a traffic jam on the four Oh five. Oh, okay. Have you seen that? No, but I've seen signs around Los Angeles that say that. Oh, okay. Well, I think that maybe that's the artist. Like, um, I think it's a reference. Yeah, I think yeah. So it's a it's a document, a short documentary about an artist uh, named Mindy Alper, um, who has had a lot of um, mental illness um, in her life, and uh, at one point had 
um, shock treatment and like has, um, is on a lot of medication now and has some trouble like communicating. Uh, but she's the, 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 the movie doesn't like pity her in any way. Like it treats her as a real person and you, because she is, and you become very attached to her, her warmth and like given the severity of the things she's been through, how like kind of positive and straightforward she can be about things is very touching. And her art is really, really good. She mm-hmm. mostly works in sort of like large scale paper mache sculpture. Um, and it's really, really cool stuff. Um, uh, and, and it's, and it's, it almost feels scripted that these like in, incredibly detailed, massive, uh, like she'll make a, a but she makes a bust of her doctor because mm-hmm. like her doctor is very as someone has a lot of medical problems she's very close yeah. to her doctor so she makes out of paper mache a bust of her doctor but it's the bust itself is taller than you were either you or I it's an enormous size bust and has such detail in uh, in, in the face um, and is so like inviting and then you realize it's made by this woman who can barely communicate she yeah. can't, like her 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 speech patterns are all uh, difficult you know. Um, she says like um things like when i was two circle years old when she means 20 you know mm, like the, yeah. that's just like how her brain works and it's really uh it's really touching it's really sort of um a touching uh tribute to what people can express with art yeah it's really really good it's mm. my it's my favorite of the documentaries um close second favorite documentaries is the one you can watch on netflix right now it's called heroin spelled heroin like the drug and then in parentheses with an e on the end got it because it is a portrait of a small town in 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 i i want to say west virginia it's been a while now since i watched it uh which is you know where we have this opioid ep- epidemic and, and these overdoses but like this place is one of the has one of the highest rates of overdoses mm-hmm. it's you know it's a it's a poor small town and a lot of people are addicted to heroin and other opioids in this uh in this in this town and it tells the story through the um, three women. One, the head of the fire department, uh, who is the, you know, the fire department gets called. She's like, she sees people overdose, having overdosed, uh, and many of them die, like, all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, multiple times a day, uh, uh, she sees an overdose. Um, it's become, like, what her job is about. Uh, the second one is a judge who specifically... Um, handles drug court like people um she sends people to treatment and like they come back and she's almost she becomes almost like a very tough love support group and because the same group of people keep coming back to her and she has to like encourage them to go into treatment but then if they backslide she has to like say i'm sorry i'm sorry i gotta send you to jail for uh you know for a while again um and the third woman is a christian woman who runs a um, nonprofit called Brown Bag Ministry, in which um, it's really interesting. Her initial thing was she, when she like realized there were like prostitutes out in in you know in in this city. Uh, she was like, I'm gonna go give them something good to eat with a little like something from the you know uh, uh, a tract from the gospel in the brown bag. Mm-hmm. And she says like, I thought they'd sit down, eat, read the tract, and then come home to Jesus. Or whatever. Right. And she realized like it's a it's not that simple, and b prostitution for most of these women is really just a symptom of they're addicted and this is what they do to make the money. And so, um, uh, 
it, it, it follows. So it follows. So it's these three women in this small town who are at the forefront of the battle against heroin uh, abuse um, and addiction. And it's uh, it's really really warm and humanistic and and real also, but also really unflinching. And also, I think it's the kind of movie I think politically that makes both you would make both you and me happy. Okay, because it shows um, how much a you know, like you said, like I said, a, a, a Christian, like nonprofit, you know, private uh, um, organization like Brownback Ministry. But then it also shows the importance of uh, of of public policy and mm-hmm. the way that the courts and the quote unquote first responders um, can enact large scale changes uh, when given the direction and the funding. So it's, I think it's a, it's a really good balance of seeing how, um, our different systems of humanity in America can work together to address a problem. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's really good. You can watch it on Netflix right now. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, that's three of them, right? Okay. The next one is called knife skills. Um, which is, I think it does what Edith and Eddie failed to do in that it is, it makes, it's very clear and straightforward, but it really is just, um, sort of a, an advertisement for, um, um, or, or I mean, I don't know. It makes it more, sound more crass. Cause it's basically, there's this restaurant slash cooking culinary school in, uh, Cleveland in which it, um, uh, so it operates as a restaurant. You and I, if we were in Cleveland could go have dinner there, but it also teaches people how to work in the, re- in restaurant, in the restaurant business, especially in like upscale restaurants and everyone from the cooks, to the servers, to the bartenders, everyone there is a former convict. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they start, like, I guess they do a, a class. It, you know, it's a, it's like a six month or whatever course. And they, I guess they do two a year and they start with like 120 to 164 former convent convicts and generally only like 40 or so actually make it all the way through. But then they work in the restaurant and then they can, get jobs, hmm. you know, in restaurants, you know, theoretically for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Um, uh, and, um, uh, it's, it's founded by a guy who I, I guess got into some drug trouble when he was younger and was spared, I guess, jail time by a judge. And the judge sort of, I guess, pushed him to work in a, somehow he ended up working in a kitchen and he talks about how it saved his life. And so he founded this thing along with a, an actual French chef, um, and so, yeah, it's a really, it's a really touching, um, uh, portrait of what, you know, this kind of, uh, world can do and the way that, um, people can put their lives back together when they're given that structure and given, um, that, uh, support, you know, um, uh, and, uh, it's always also like, it's something that's really funny to see people who like clearly have never like not worked with fine dining before. There's yeah. one like waiter who's like, uh, uh, he's trying to like, they're trying to teach him to describe the specials or whatever. And he's like, such your fresh cut tuna with, uh, fresh greens or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, uh, but it also is, uh, unlike something like heaven is traffic gym in the four Oh five. It's not particularly artful itself in its presentation. It's pretty straightforward, yeah. but that makes it more successful than something like Edith and Eddie, which was too confused to, I think hit home. Sure. Um, and the final one is one called traffic stop, which is, uh, um, a, uh, a black woman who was, um, 
stopped, you know, by a cop mm-hmm. and it turned very quickly into a physical confrontation and, um, sort of changed her life. And it's a portrait of her life. She's like, a um, she's in the church choir and she teaches dance and she's like, um, you, you know, she talks about like before, if she ever Googled her name, it would like, those are the things that would come up. Now she has to go down pages because yeah. the first thing that comes up is the police video or whatever. And, uh, they show the police video and it is, um, to me, this is not a, uh, uh, you know, he said, she said type of thing. It seems very clear that, um, the cop is confrontational, more confrontational than it needs to be for a simple traffic stop. You know, mm-hmm. all she was just speeding. That's all she was doing. Yeah. Um, and she, uh, it's, she's all not exactly like, um, polite about it either but uh she's at one but she's she's like annoyed that she's being stopped because she was on her way to uh i think it was choir practice or whatever or or maybe to dance or whatever uh anyway and she says uh, to this cop that she's already been annoyed with she says okay can you just hurry up and the cop like loses it to me i mean that's that's what i saw is that at that point he's like okay i'm taking you like and he he grabs her when there's been no fit he initiates the physical um conversation is is i think the the heart of the problem here is that he you know couldn't handle being told to hurry up by a member of the public that he serves by the way uh and he got physical first and that to me um that's that's my read on uh, on on that i think uh, i'm not sure where you can see traffic stop i know it's an hbo so i'm not sure if it's on it might be on hbo go um i was lucky enough to get a link for review but uh yeah they're all uh they're all pretty good my ranking uh, off the top of my head would be heaven's drive gym on the 405 then heroin then traffic stop then knife skills then edith and eddie now i recognize that cops have it hard i get it uh-huh but it does seem to me that if I'm writing somebody a speeding ticket and they say, can you please hurry? I say, you really don't get <laughs> this, do you? You are, you are not internalizing this at all. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know. I don't, I don't like to, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. You know, sure. I'm, I don't know that many cops. Um, but I know, um, uh, my dad did know a lot of cops. Mm-hmm. It was part of his job. Um, yeah. And I remember asking him like when I was in high school and like punk rock and getting into like sort of, uh, anti, anti the man thinking that, yeah. uh, I have not grown out of I don't know if you need to grow out of it. I'm still, I'm still pretty much punk. Um, your blazer speaks otherwise. <laughs> yeah. And I believe you do have a pocket square in there. Is that- I do have a pocket square. Okay. Yeah. Uh, punk, uh, punk it square. Um, anyway, uh, uh, I remember asking my dad, I was like, how many of these guys really are just, the stereotype of guys with chips on their shoulder who want to throw their weight around. And my dad was like a lot more than you'd, than you'd think. Like, uh, even you, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, yeah. So I, to me, I think I've often, I've often made this half joke, um, about the presidency where I've often said anyone who wants to be president should be disqualified from yes. becoming president. And I wonder, like, I think you can kind of extrapolate that to any position that gives you power over people. Yeah. Wanting to be in that position is a little suspect. And I think guys like the guy in traffic stop, the cop in traffic stop show that attitude where he just is way too aggressive immediately and cannot handle the fact that she is not, uh, kowtowing, you know, 
I have, yeah, I've been friends with cops before, and I knew them before they were cops, and I knew them after. And there was a definite change in manner and manners. Uh-huh. Um, and while they were still friendly and all that, I definitely saw that they were a, not necessarily standoffish, but a bit prickly. Um, and I was like, oh, interesting. Noted. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I, I'm not necessarily in the habit of defending cops. What I will, what I imagine is that like, in order to do that job, you pro like to actually do it, you probably do need to adopt an air of authority. And if somebody questions it, like you do need to maybe shut them down a little bit, especially if they have done something wrong, you don't be like, well, I know how to solve this. I'm just going to get physical with this person who has not gotten physical at all. Yeah. If you have, command of your authority then you should be able to do that without like that's to me it was a uh it was uh immature yeah um but uh what i will say again i don't like to defend cops either but i'm I'm reminded of in my high school i went to a high school with a lot of students and so it had multiple vice principals Mm -hmm. that had different jobs and there was this one i can't remember her name but she was so mean like i hated her i remember like (laughs) complaining about her to my drama teacher and my drama teacher was like well you know what her job is here like she deals with handing out detentions and suspensions basically every high school student that she comes into contact with all day long yeah. is probably uh, a shithead <laughs> that's yeah. not what my drama teacher said but like she was like but my drama teacher was like just try to realize that she deals with the worst kids all day and maybe is predisposed to treat you like you're a bad kid and so i do think there's something with cops that like all day long they see yeah. awful things or they yeah. see people being awful or, or, or breaking law or being cruel to one another or whatever. And so maybe they, uh, are not predisposed to seeing, to giving people the benefit of the doubt or seeing right. the good in people. Maybe there's something there, but, uh, I don't know. There should, maybe there should be something to address that, but I wouldn't be, a the person to say what that would, would be. There's a, a Brian Regan bit where he, uh, talks about, how he lost uh, his baggage uh, in a, on a flight. And so he went to go visit, you know, the, the people at the counter that handle that. And he goes, man, these people have to just have the worst job ever because the minute somebody walks up, they must be like, let me guess, you're angry. <laughs> and uh, because what choice do, yeah. do they have? So, okay, sorry, we can, uh, we can move on. So right. now, uh, Next an actual movie. film or... Actually, yeah, an actual uh, feature like a, film. Like a real movie. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Uh, a feature film um, that I'm over the moon about, Tyler, uh, and you can read my review on the website of Alex Garland's Annihilation. All right, we can uh, uh, we can talk about that now or later if you like. Um, uh, let's just talk about it now then. Okay. Um, so you saw it too, I take it. Yeah, I saw it by myself on my birthday. Uh, oh, I'm <laughs> sorry that you went. Why did you have to go by yourself? Jen was not Jen was feeling working? well. Oh, okay. And, and uh, she and I were going to do that and then go to a nice dinner and then she wasn't feeling well. And so I was just like, I'm happy to stay home and take care of you. She's like, no, 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 it's your birthday. So right. Like, all right, I'm going to go see a movie by myself. And you know what? I was thrilled. Well, happy birthday, by the way. Thank you. Um, I did text you on your birthday just yes, you for, for points yes. there. Um, anyway, uh, I made note of it in my head. Oh, good. <laughs> um, okay. So yeah, uh, annihilation. I was, uh, I've been, you know, I been, I guess a fan of Alex Garland to some extent ever since I read the beach, which he wrote in right. the novel, but did not write the screenplay. John Hodd wrote, wrote the screenplay. Um, and then Alice Garland went on to become 
Danny Boyle's like go to screenwriter, yeah. which is weird. Um, uh, I was on uh, Aaron Newer's podcast, the Out Now podcast, talking about Annihilation, and he, Aaron was joking about that the way that Danny Boyle just decided to cut out the middleman. Yeah. Um, and poor John Hodge got uh, tossed to the side. <laughs> anyway, um, so I've been a fan of Alice Garland. I was really looking forward to this. And this, um, while I don't think it's as, uh, as tight maybe a movie as ex machina was i think that's ultimately to its credit and Mm. annihilation ended up being way more than i thought it was going to be in terms of um uh in terms of big ideas scary ideas in that it's i think one of the things i took away from the movie or maybe this is one of the things that i read into it because this is how i tend to feel um or something i tend to think about a lot maybe i was projecting but it's it's about the idea that we it's very much okay. It's very clearly about environmental fears at one, you know, in a, in a large way, um, in that there's this expanding thing that is, yeah. you know, killing people and and you know eradicating life or whatever. But uh, we as humans have the the hubris to talk about um, the things that we're bringing on with climate change as the end of the world. Yeah. But it's not the end of the world. It's just the end of us the world to quote or to paraphrase an old George Carlin bit, like the world's going to be fine. Yeah. It's going to, the world's going to shake us off like a bad cold is what, is what George Carlin said. Uh, and I feel like this is a movie that actually like confronts that idea and actually finds some beauty in the idea, uh, that, um, as Ian Malcolm said, life finds a way, even if it doesn't include our consciousness anymore. It is so fascinating that you have gone this way because I spent the last week listening to the audiobook of Jurassic Park. Ah. And there is an extended sequence of Malcolm talking about how the end of the world, that we cannot end the world. We can end ourselves, right. but the world is indeed oh. going to be fine. It's fascinating. I must have picked that up some kind of, or because I read Jurassic Park when I was a kid. I don't yeah. remember that. I remember it from the George Carlin <laughs> yeah. bit. Um, but, uh, but I also think, in terms of its big sci fi ideas, and the, you know, we talk about a battleship retention all the time, how you and I like to take on big topics, talk about them for an hour or two yeah. and then come to a resolution. And uh, I think this is a movie that in a way that will probably annoy a lot of mainstream, you know, moviegoers or people who don't go to as many movies, but it's a big sci-fi big idea movie that at the end of the, at the end of the day has the courage to go. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Yes. But here's the thing. So, I saw this film at the same theater that I saw Ex Machina, actually, which is just up in Granada Hills. It's a bunch of, it's a mainstream theater with a bunch of mainstream people. I saw it on us at seven o'clock on a Sunday. Uh, the theater was pretty full and I listened to people's conversations coming out and they were engaging with the film and what it was trying to say. And I think here is the difference because I agree. Like it's, it's, it ends on an ambiguous note yeah. and there's a lot of weird, uh, you know, a lot of strange It is a weird stuff. movie. Yeah. I said this, like I didn't like mother, but in a way like props to Paramount for between these two movies yeah. being willing to give filmmakers money to make weird shit with great casts. I think Paramount might be like super pessimistic right now about the future (laughs) of humanity. Um, but, uh, I do think that yes, it ends on an ambiguous note, but it's deliberate. And I do think that if it's deliberate, because that last shot is a very clear, has a very clear idea. Mm -hmm. uh, That last sequence, this, the, the, 
communication between these two characters. I won't say who they are. Yeah. Um, and people seem to be talking about that. And I do think that like, there is a way to bring a certain type of mainstream sensibility where you don't explain everything, but you do just in your very, through a very specific sense of focus, you can suggest that there is an explanation. And so I, I am interested. I know that the film, like its cinema score was like a C or something like that, which is a bummer. But like the people at the theater that I saw were just, were trying to figure out the ending and didn't sit. And their tone was not a frustrated tone. It yeah. was an excited tone. And so I thought that was very exciting. And I do think that Alex Garland brings together yeah. these very different sensibilities. Like, you know, when he, like he wrote 28 days later, he wrote sunshine. And if you look at both, like they've got these big ideas and also these very mainstream sensibilities. Yeah. But that, that's the thing about annihilation is that the, some of them, the sensibilities are less mainstream. Whereas like 28 days later in terms of story, it feels like it's shot out of a cannon. Sure. Annihilation has a very, what I'm going to call a deliberate pace. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, and I wonder if that maybe, uh, I, I, I would be worried. Not that I, I don't spend that much time. I, don't, I honestly don't spend that much time thinking about what a mainstream audience is going to like. Yeah. But when a major studio puts $55 million into a big, weird, cool uh, sci-fi movie, I, then I do start to worry about it because I want it to be a success. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And so I... Um, I do worry about uh, whether people, um, again, and this is not, it sounds condescending when I say like lay people, but really like the thing I say all the time, when Harold Ramos spoke at our, uh, rest in peace, when he spoke at our college, uh, he said in terms of like green lighting and making a major studio motion picture, he's Mm -hmm. like, they can't keep, they're not thinking about us. They're right. thinking about the average person. The average person goes to a movie five times a year and probably even less now. Um, oh, yeah. um, then, you know, 15 years ago or more 15 more, you know, 16 years ago, whenever that was. Um, uh, and so I just, oh, that's all to say that I'm not condescending to people who don't right. watch. I know that most people don't watch 300 movies a year. Like I do. Right. And that, that's not a judgment against them. But we, what we do need to consider is that, and yeah, I'm also not in the habit of uh, defending mainstream moviegoers, but I do need to remind myself every once in a while that like, yeah, there was a time when twin peaks was an insanely popular show. Lost was an insanely popular show. And I do think that there, that tonally annihilation is very similar to lost. Like very deliberately paced, revealing mm-hmm. certain things here and yeah. there. Uh, and With then the, the reveal, occasional big scares. Yeah. And then the reveal just brings on more questions, but you're just so fascinated and you're just transfixed that. Yeah. Again, I guess there's the cinema score that tells us that half the people like it and half the people don't. But, uh, but yeah, I do think that there's enough there for like somebody who's just looking for entertainment to be engaged. But at the same time, I've completely lost touch with the closest I've come to a mainstream audience was listening, was eavesdropping on people coming out of that theater. (laughs) So, you know, I've, I'm not one to say what is mainstream and what is over there. Yeah. Um, Uh, um, it was just a theater full of fishmongers. Uh, a couple things, although I've already forgotten what one of them was. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. A couple things. Um, one, uh, I'm always a fan of Natalie Portman, but I think Natalie Portman is great here mm-hmm. in that. Um, and I'm repeating something I said on Aaron's podcast, but, um, especially in the last act of the movie, there's not a ton of dialogue yeah. and it's a fantastic physical performance mm-hmm. from her. Um, and then the other thing I'll say, 
I had a number of people after after I saw it because I saw it um, like the Monday or Tuesday before it came out. Uh, Tuesday before it came out, um, and so a number of people that knew I had seen it. You know, you and I uh, were at um, uh, a wedding this weekend. A number mm-hmm. of people hadn't seen it yet. There asked me the same question. They asked me, "Is it scary?" And my answer at the time, my answer was um, like that I think it's, there's a sort of existential terror to it, but in terms of like minute to minute, is it scary? I didn't find it that scary. And then my wife went and saw it alone. Um, hmm. and she came and like text me. She was like, why didn't you tell me that movie was so scary? <laughs> and so I guess it's like a, your mind was made very thing. Did you find it scary? There are scares, but I would say well, yeah, as a, the, the bear for yeah. lack of a better term, the bear scene is definitely yeah. a scary scene and a Other nice little that, bit of uh, sound design in there as well um, for something but, that is, uh, and yeah, we can't get into it, but it's, it's conceptually so crazy that it could have like sunk the movie. Yeah. You know, if, if done, done wrong, poorly, but yeah. It's, yeah, it's really um, scary. So there are scares. I'm not sure if I'd say the film is scary. It is unnerving. Okay. That is the word I would use. All right. Because you really don't, because they are just walking into a completely foreign environment and they know that nobody has come out of it except one person that uh, was on the brink of death. Yeah. And so like there are moments when I myself, they're like, wait, you're just camping in tents. What the hell is wrong with you? Anything can happen to you at any time. Right. And then, of course, there's some really nice body horror. And I read a tweet of yours. I didn't read your, your review. I haven't read that yet. But, you know, when you, com- when you said that there's some Hannibal in there, yeah. hell yes, there's some Hannibal in there. And it's beautiful and horrifying. Yeah. And it's everything uh, that, I, that I look for in this type of thing. Multiple people have told me when I compare it to Hannibal that it's like a video game called The Last of Us, which I don't know what that is. I've heard of it, yeah. Multiple people not talking to one another okay. like have separately told me uh, it's also like The Last of Us. So I don't know what that is, but apparently that's something maybe I should check out. I mean, I'm, I'm mostly familiar I, with Super Mario Kart, and it's not <laughs> like that a lot. There is yeah. that scene with, you know, Yoshi's stomach and all that sort of thing, but, uh, you know... Um, yeah, I think the ship. The, I think the train has sailed on me being into video games. <laughs> uh, all right, so now, well, now we've covered one year, so we're back to me doing two okay. and you doing one. So uh, this is a right. uh, this is a rewatch. Oh, damn, we're going slow. Um, okay, this is a rewatch. Uh, it was playing. I do enjoy these occasional fathom events uh, where oh, yeah. where they'll uh, put a classic film. I think AMC does it or, or TCM, and so it's there's a little wraparound hosted by Ben Mankiewicz. Um, And so it was uh, George Cukor's The Philadelphia Story, which Jen had recently commented she had never seen. And I thought, well, here we go. Yeah. And so uh, we went out and I hadn't seen it in a while. And I actually just got the Criterion Blu-ray for Christmas, um, which I haven't gotten a chance to watch yet. But um, boy, what a what a nice, classy film. But it's it's so much more ahead of its time than I remembered. Like I remember it as like, ah, Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn being so classy and new England kind of, mm-hmm. uh, but also if you just look at the, their, the attitudes towards relationships, towards sex, um, it's very, uh, it's, it's 1940 overt, uh-huh. you know, um, now we would look at that and be, and think it's incredibly tame, but I mean, it's, you know, that it's heavily implied that uh, Jimmy Stewart and Catherine Hepburn have gone to bed together on uh-huh. the night before her wedding and all that sort of thing. So, and people are just trying to figure out what that means. And it really is 
on that level, it's really interesting. Um, it's a beautifully written, of course, great performances all around. Uh, Jimmy Stewart won best actor, um, which, you know, it's a, it's a great performance, but my big takeaway as it always is Mm -hmm. when I see a Cary Grant performance is that he is absolutely unrivaled. There is no, there's there's certainly no Cary Grant equivalent now. Um, you can look at almost any of those old time actors and say like, okay, well who's kind of our modern equivalent. And you can sometimes find one Cary Grant. I feel like you really can't. Um, he just was such a unique presence where he could be dramatic. And then in the, with just the slightest change of infection, uh, inflection, pardon me. Um, he could be goofy and just super droll and just all of these things. Um, of course it was only a matter of time before he wound up, you know, working with Hitchcock who's it's per- that's a perfect pairing. Um, and it's just, uh, so he's the way he's the one I, even though I love Jimmy Stewart and Catherine Hepburn, like the person I come away thinking about is Cary Grant partially cause he's kind of this weird, yeah. uh, uh, puppet master, uh, in the film. Um, I'd love to like, we should do a Jimmy Stewart episode because I'd like to figure like, just take the time to look at his film filmography chronologically mm-hmm. because I think because of the Frank Capra stuff, yeah, we think of him as like the Tom Hanks of his day, the, you know, unassailable every man, right. you know, but when you look at the number of roles he had in which he kind of went against that, I wonder, is that a, is that a retrospective narrative or was there a time that he was that? And then he actively fought against it because it like, was after world war two. Uh, but I mean, Philadelphia story is pre-world war two and he's kind of a like d- drunken cynic. Philadelphia uh, story. He is, you yes. know? Um, uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how many other of the pre-world war two movies he, um, is willing to be a bit of a, uh, jerk or a cad. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, let me, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Something to say. Uh, I, I had read an article last year for school about, uh, Jimmy Stewart and his unique career because he actually did fight in world war two. Yeah. And they said that even though his public image was still very, very much the same after world war two, because he could be kind of caddish and a jerk in something like Philadelphia story. But if you compare that to, some of it, like the man from Laramie or any of his Hitchcock stuff. Um, you see the, like, Oh, he's willing to be, he's willing to go really dark mm-hmm. after that. Like I wouldn't say his part in Philadelphia story is dark. Right. It certainly isn't vertigo. Um, right. yeah. and so okay. he just seemed a, a lot more willing to engage with darker parts of humanity. Even it's a wonderful life. Like there's a, there's a very specific type of cynicism there. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, another question. Cause okay. I almost, I, ta- I think I talked on a recent movie journal, uh, Natalie and I watched on, on, um, Valentine's Day we watched When Harry Met Sally. Okay. And I was considering the Philadelphia story. Um, but I, w- I was thinking about our conversation about how the, uh, or I've had this conversation a lot um, over the past uh, few months, the original Blade Runner, how the love scene, quote unquote, does not play well today. Okay. Uh, in, you know, in that it's essentially a rape scene, right? Sure. <laughs> um, she's literally tries to leave and he, uh, and I was wondering about, is the part where, Cary Grant grabs Catherine Hepburn by the face and throws her out the door. Is that funny now? 
Jen didn't think so. <laughs> yeah, I, that's, um, I was like, that might not be the right mood. Her her thing is, look, here's the deal. Cara Grant could do anything you wanted to me, but I recognize <laughs> that that's not what we're talking about. Jen afterwards, she's like, I don't know. I don't know why she'd want to be with a, a guy who, who hit her. And I yeah. was like, and I said, well, it's not officially a hit, but close enough. Yeah. Um, and I do think that, and certainly the people in, in our theater who were predominantly much older, and I think they were okay. Oh, they, they laughed at it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, I do think that that has, has changed yeah, and, and no uh, matter how charming he is, like, I think that is seen as that's, as, that's, if, if it's goofy enough, the idea of just kind of pushing someone on the face, yeah, it's a goofy enough gesture that I think you could read it as that, but also it is still yeah. manhandling somebody. Yeah. It's know? funny. I, uh, I say this now because Natalie has not seen quite as many of like the classic Hollywood stuff, which I haven't seen, you know, I'm not, I'm no expert or whatever, but we were talking about when we saw his girl Friday, mm-hmm. I was like a lot of, uh, a lot of these old movies aren't as sexist as you would think, but they are as racist as you would think. But Philadelphia story is kind of a, uh, an exception there in that, like, not that I think the movie as a whole is sexist, but just that, that scene that, it, that it's in there, uh, seems weird. Whereas like a lot of the night movies of the 1930s and early forties have great female leads, I think, because, mm-hmm. um, I'm not the, the, this is just something I've heard that like in terms of marketing, you know, like young adult women were the teenage boys of today. Like now movies are made for teenage boys. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I guess at that time, like the idea was that, um, this is, you know, when, uh, the husband would take his wife out for their Friday or Saturday night, you know, and, um, they aim at, aim the movies at the, at the wife and that's who, oh, yeah. how they got people in the theater. So I think that's why, uh, like I said, a lot of times I'm surprised that the, these old movies aren't as sexist, but again, they are racist as fuck, sure. including okay, yeah. his girl Friday. Okay, which I I watched somewhat recently, and now I don't remember the race. It has. Thankfully. There's a part that it's it doesn't even have any black characters in it. Okay, but there's a part where one reporter is tell, talking to Rosalind Russell and sharing just a human interest story about an African American woman having a baby, and he repeatedly uses an incredibly offensive term for an African African American child with no malice whatsoever. He's just like, this is what, this is the word. And so he's telling a fun story, except he keeps using this word that I'm like, Oh my God. Every I don't time think I actually know the word. I don't like to say Okay. It. All right. Yeah. You have to tell me afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Um, as though you don't, as though you weren't going to say it on your own. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, so that's Philadelphia story. So it's, it really is wonderful. And one of the other, uh, Oh geez. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I forgot about that. Um, and actually, now that I think about it, like, I'm not sure if I would qualify this as sexist, but I forgot how much of Philadelphia story is all about people assessing Catherine Hepburn. Mm. Sometimes they, and it's, and it's one or the other, like they either say you're an absolute spoiled brat or you are an absolute goddess. And huh. Catherine Hepburn does what she can to bring these things together to create a char- create a character that could be seen either way. Um, and it, it really is fascinating because, and I could see that being, 
I don't know if I view it as sexist, but I could definitely see an argument being made that it is sexist because as though this woman is only there for men to either approve of or not. Um, as far as not necessarily the way she looks, but her behavior. Um, and some of that could be down, could be a function less of, of her being a woman and more about her being rich. Um, but yeah, it's, it's still an interesting film and I think it actually has gotten more interesting, uh, over the years, certainly since the last time I saw it. All right. Um, Moving on. I saw movies coming out in, uh, I think next month, um, called the house of tomorrow in which, uh, Asa Butterfield, is that how you say his name? Yep. Um, plays a, basically a kid who was homeschooled by his grandmother played by Alan Burstyn. Um, and they, it's a back whole backstory, but they live in a geodesic dome. Um, and they teach the, they give tours and they teach the teachings of Buckminster Fuller. Mm-hmm. And that's like what their whole life is. And it's the only thing he's ever been raised with. And then he ends up sort of becoming friend, uh, a, uh, a church youth group takes a tour and he ends up becoming friends with the pastor's son played by, um, Alex Wolf. Um, okay. Yes. There's okay. Nat Wolf and Alex Wolf. They are, they, are, are they, they bro- are brothers? They're brothers. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Alex Wolf is, okay. is this one. Um, uh, and the youth pastor is played by Nick Offerman. Um, okay. and his daughter, Alex Wolf's sister is played by Maude Apatow. Oh, all right. Um, and then the youth pastor's ex-wife is played by the great Michaela Watkins. She only has oh, yeah. like three scenes in the movie, but they're all killer. Uh, she, I, I'm a big fan of her. Stands to reason. Yeah. Um, uh, and so it's about him sort of like, uh, coming out of his shell or whatever. And it's, so it's not, I think on the surface, it sounds like a very, um, twee or precious coming of age American indie. Um, and I was very glad to find that it's not that really what this is to me, at least is a movie about the power of punk rock <laughs> because Alex Wolf's character is, has a, uh, uh, heart disease and can't do much, uh, you know, physically with his life and is a very sort of, he's just an angry kid who spends his time listening to punk. And he, um, at first becomes friends with Hazel Butterfield's character, quote unquote friends just to use him to steal him a bass guitar so they can start a punk band together. But of course they eventually become actual friends. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I do think, I actually think it's a really good movie about, yeah, about punk rock and anger and also about the way that um, families can hurt each other and it's kind of okay. Like, it's kind of like there's always, like, there's something to be said for the safety net of forgiveness that you have with a family as long as you don't abuse it, um, which is maybe what Michaela Watkins' character has done in the past, we're given to believe. Um, uh, uh, I actually think it's a it's a very nice, nice movie. Um yeah, I, I don't think it has. Uh, I like to tell you when a movie has a Christian element mm-hmm. to get your point of view. I don't think this movie has actually anything to say. I think it's just. Uh, I think it's even eventually. It's pretty much pretty strongly implied that the that Nick Offerman became the youth group pastor after his son's diagnosis is just a way of like giving his son something to do and being in his life. And I don't mm. think that they're, I don't think that any, any of them are actually particularly devout. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't think the movie has any comment on that either. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, so that's house of tomorrow. And then I watched the Netflix documentary that really pissed me off, which is supposed to, uh, called fire in the blood. Um, okay. which is about, um, it's about the African AIDS crisis, but it's specifically about how little was done about it by people 
who had the means to do so because it would have been so unprofitable for them to do mm. so. And so I talked about heroin being a movie that balanced our two uh, points of view. No fire in the blood is a passionately anti-capitalist movie. It is a okay. movie about uh, how business and commerce and capitalism thrive most in a anti-human heartless way and uh, how hard it is to get stuff done when profit is threatened. It's a really frustrating movie. Um, it also has a re- some really interesting things to say um, about basically uh, uh, about the difference between what a president can do. Because I think, um, yeah, uh, presidents have said this, that they're like more free and can actually do more after their president. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Uh, and this is, so this, um, this movie shows how both, both Clinton and George W. Bush, um, and the movie is also very, how they both tried to address this and get affordable drug because the drugs existed, these cocktails. And they both tried. This is one of Bush's like, yeah, the, the movie even makes clear that George W. Bush did more than Bill Clinton, yeah, but more got done, um, they were both so hobbled by whatever, all, you know, the, the checks and balances and strictures or whatever that more got done by the Clinton initiative after, mm-hmm. after the, after his presidency, than either Clinton or Bush could do, um, as president. Yeah. Uh, it's a really, really infuriating, uh, movie and, uh, yeah, uh, it's on Netflix. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it, it, I guess watch it. Cause I think it's in, it's important to see these kind of things, but, uh, man, this movie pissed me off, which is what it's designed, designed to do. All right. So next up for me, I'm just going to kind of rush through this and I talked about it a little bit last week. Um, so for the class that I, that I'm TAing for, um, we were talking about story structure. And so I wanted to talk about a film that, uh, that the class had seen, and uh, so I picked Jurassic Park, which I think 95% of them had seen, which was very exciting because uh, it was difficult. I'm not, I'm not saying like, ah, these kids, it's the, like I have no idea anymore what they have seen and what they haven't seen, um, even, yeah. even as mainstream as, as you can get. So I actually, that week, I, I made a list of like, very popular franchises and I just went one by one and like show of hands. What have you seen? What have you seen? And like, uh, the one that got the most hands, I think it was universal was Harry Potter. Okay. Um, which was interesting to me. Uh, Raiders of the lost Ark, not a, not a scene film really. Um, but Jurassic park, thankfully they had seen. And, uh, and so of course, so I rewatched that to prepare for it. And in doing so, um, you know, it's a film I don't necessarily love. I enjoy the spectacle of it, and I, you know, Spielberg's still a wonderful director. So there are some sequences that you just can't deny, like that raptor kitchen sequence uh-huh. is like so stressful. Uh, even though I, kn- I've seen the film many times, I know everything's going to be fine, mm-hmm. but like, ugh, gets me. Um, it's when the uh, to me I, I jump when the raptor jumps up at the uh, when they're cl- climbing climbing into the ducks. Is that what they're doing? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and like, something like that. The raptor makes one last jump at uh, the kid's leg, yeah. or is it? Uh, yeah, it's the kid's leg. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, uh, but I'll say this: like the in <laughs> from a structure standpoint, it is 
almost flawless. I mean, the way they set up, you know, I think I might've said this, this last week or two weeks ago, but, uh, you know, it falls so firmly into the three act structure. Like you can actually see exactly when it moves from act one to act two Mm. and it's right at 30 minutes. Um, Mm. and then you can see when it goes from act two to act three and it's at, uh, right at about 90 minutes and it's a two hour film. Um, it's really interesting the way that works out, but I guess I shouldn't be super surprised. Um, and on that level, I came to appreciate it a a great deal. And, and in, and even breaking it down the way I did, I wound up answering some questions that I've had for a while. Um, one being that, you know, in the opening sequence where they're transferring a dinosaur and then, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, it gets one of the workers, it does this thing where it does a it put it, it cuts to an extreme close up of Muldoon's eyes. He's the guy who you know, clever girl and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it cuts to the raptor's eye. So it's like okay, so these characters are these two things are like bonded, mm-hmm. which is odd when you think that like Muldoon actually isn't that major of a character. Like if you want to look at like the hunter and the and his and the thing that kills him, it's like, okay, well it certainly is no Quint shark situation. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, okay, so why did Spielberg do that? Why did he create this bond? And you realize like, because when this guy eventually dies, mm-hmm. it's a, it's an indicator to us that nobody can kill these things. Cause mm-hmm. like if anybody, he has a connect bond, uh, a direct bond with them. He knows more about them than anybody else, the way they hunt. And if anyone can actually stop them, it's him. And he can, and then yeah. he can't. And so I feel like, okay, that's all right. That's, that's interesting. So I, I enjoyed watching it on that level. Um, and, uh, it gave me a great deal more respect for that screenplay. So yeah, Jurassic Park, uh, to its credit yielded, uh, after having seen it many, many times, it yielded, uh, more, uh, more treasures. All right. Um, moving on. I, um, am a big fan of David Lean as are you, mm-hmm. but, uh, there's a movie that, uh, a lot of people apparently didn't like when it came out and Tyler, I'm going to tell you a lot of people were wrong. Okay. I finally caught up with 1970s Ryan's daughter. Okay. Have, have you seen it? I have not. It is so good. Okay. Um, I think from just my research of reading, uh, uh, uh the reactions at the time, I think a lot of people were like, uh, it's just, you know, David Lynch is doing his big grand thing again, even though this yeah. movie isn't bridge on the required Lawrence Arabia. It's a, you know, it's a sort of love, love triangle mm-hmm. in a, in an Irish town during world war one, uh, or just after world war one. Um, uh, or is it just before actually not getting over, but in the 1910s, mm-hmm. um, our friend West Anthony, <laughs> by the way, has a very, very in-depth episode about David Lean and Maurice Jarre. And he talks a lot about Ryan's daughter and actually, reads after the episode is over he reads like an entire chapter out of a book about david lean that was all about the critical response to ryan's daughter because he didn't make another movie for 14 years he did not apparently yeah um and uh and try to guess who the cattiest critic was was it pauline kale it was pauline kale of course (laughs) i like pauline kale uh i uh i appreciate that sort of thing it's just, there's a reason we would remember Pauline Kael. Yeah, I know. Because <laughs> she was a jerk. <laughs> yeah, who spent, who spent you and I would of, have like real careers if we were more willing to be jerks. Yeah. We want to be liked too much. That's the problem. I guess it's that, yeah. Um, 
But anyway, maybe we found love in our lives. What do you think of that? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Not this old spinster like uh, Pauline Kael. <laughs> I don't know if she was married or not. I, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, so Sarah Miles plays Ryan's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan being the name of the, uh, uh, well, what we'd call the bar owner, they call the publican mm-hmm. uh, in a small Irish town um, that is occupied by the English. She's uh, kind of an outsider, you know, kind of uh, kind of a bell type. Okay. You know, she's kind of, uh, she's smarter than the other yeah. people her age. She feels... She wants much more than this provincial life. Yeah, that's exactly what she wants. And so she has a crush on the school teacher, played by Robert Mitchum. All right. Um, doing an Irish accent and doing a great job. Really? Uh, yeah, I think. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not Irish. Maybe it's fucking terrible. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway... She has a crush on him. He's a widower. Eventually, you know, she's a grown up. They end up getting married um, because she's the most worldly thing that she can see in her life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so it is. Dur- so yeah, it is during World War One because a soldier comes and gets a British soldier gets stationed. You know, because like I said, it's occupied by by the English, and so there are, is a base. You know, in the town or just outside the town, and so a new uh, like soldier who was wounded wounded in world war one and and walks with a limp uh shows up and um he's young and dashing and obviously brave and uh, and and traveled and and now she's married to the school teacher but now she's got the hots for this guy um which is uh bad a because she's married also because everybody hates the english right uh and so it uh amen as you can imagine it's a big scandal yeah um and uh that's pretty much like i said that's pretty much the whole story it's you know it's uh the the version that's on amazon to rent is um three hours and 16 minutes uh it's not the roadshow version which um is three hours and 26 minutes i'm wondering if maybe that's just overture or whatever Hmm. i don't know how much else is in the roadshow uh version but um uh so yeah that seems like an outsized runtime for this kind of story but uh you know David Lean is David Lean and he, he, he yeah. fills every, every second I think. And especially, uh, I hate, you know, re- I hate reading too much about the background, but Christopher Jones, who plays the young British soldier, um, had all his lines redubbed because David Lean thought he was terrible, hmm. uh, in, in the movie. Um, and he honestly isn't that great. And yet somehow this is a, this is a testament to, uh, or an argument in favor of Alfred Hitchcock's uh, actors or cattle type of thing, mm-hmm. in that David Lean was still make, able to put together something that feels so crazily passionate. This, yeah. this love story, even though he got nothing out of the male lead mm-hmm. at all, uh, apparently. And that's um, tough when it's like, oh, it's a love triangle. One is a terrible actor. The other is Robert Mitchum, who yeah. admittedly is like older and stuff, but infinitely more charismatic. Yeah. Uh, also, I mentioned earlier that we've been talking about Trevor Howard lately. Later, uh, Trevor Howard plays the town priest, mm. um, and uh, he's he's fantastic as well. Uh, the other thing I'll say is the um, the cinematography. I talked. Uh, I've talked on another thing we recently recorded um, uh, about um, how much of cinematography now is color timing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so to see something from 1970 before like digital intermediate and everything that is so beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, it seems to me all the more impressive now. Yeah. Um, it's a, an absolutely gorgeous movie and I really fell in love with it. And, um, 
was also at times very crushed by it. It had some very sad stuff in it uh, as well, as you might imagine. I mean, uh, you know, usually I think often when you have a lead cheating on their spouse yeah. in a movie, the, uh, lazy movies make the spouse a jerk in yeah. some way, you know, like um, either I always think of David Schwimmer in six days, seven nights for some reason. Um, but also on the other side, Rachel McAdams in midnight in Paris is another yeah. one. Like, uh, the movie's just saying like, ah, of course this person's cheating. Yeah. Wouldn't you? Um, but that's not what this is at all. Like your Robert Mitchum is so great. And he's such a decent guy. Yeah. Not uh, unlike brief encounter, another David lean film in which the, the husband is right. a perfectly yeah. nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I watched that. Uh, and then this won't take me long. I also watched, um, Academy Award nominee Ferdinand. Oh, okay. Um, it's a, it's just, your boy, what an odd one, two punch. There. <laughs> yeah. It's just the standard 20, you know, 21st century kids movie, too many pop culture references, too slick, too bright. It has a few, um, inspired things. There's a big car chase that very much reminded me of the car chase at the end of secret life of pets, which was the only part of secret life of pets that I liked. Um, there's also a very inventive sequence in which Ferdinand finds himself in a literal China shop oh, that's <laughs> um, fun. and, uh, has to get through it without breaking anything. It's a very, that's a, that's a fun, fun yeah. moment. Um, and then there is, uh, there's one character bull character, um, who never speaks, uh, and is named Machina machine. Oh, okay. Because this bull is just like supposed to be insanely bred only to fight. And is like a total tough guy, but ends up being, um, kind of a, a bit of heart in the movie. And I, I found Makina to be a, a good, sweet comic relief. Okay. Um, but mostly, yeah, you don't need to spend your time with Ferdinand. I feel weird complaining about the Oscar, nominees for animated film because i didn't see so much of it right but like i know from just having been a person who was paying attention to movies that your name and in this corner of the world were both widely very well loved movies yeah your name especially yeah um and it's crazy to me that boss baby and ferdinand get in there and i I didn't see boss baby i know i heard actually yeah i've heard some some good things things, but it is it's not uh, like the emoji movie got in right that's true uh, but I mean, Ferdinand got in and it's, I don't know. I'm assuming that your name in the corner, in this corner of the world are better. I know from having seen it, the Lego Batman movie is better than mm. Ferdinand. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of a bummer. Uh, incidentally, right. so talking about that, uh, bull in China shop thing, which actually sounds like a fun joke. Uh, I've said this before, but I've been thinking lately about, and you and I talked about this last week off mic. Um, some of my favorite jokes, just like individual jokes or bits in movies, even movies that aren't that great. And I was thinking about that film. What was it? Was it Nomeo and Juliet? Is that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the first films that I like yeah. saw for the, the sequel's for the about site. to come out. Sherlock I know. Uh, it's going to be awful, I'm sure, because the first one wasn't very good. But it does have a just a delightful joke that's for almost nobody. And essentially... Um, this old woman is like, she needs to buy a, a, a lawnmower. And so the gnomes want her to buy like this, this big, like scary lawnmower. Uh, but she winds up. So she looks at this, uh, these two different ads and one uh-huh. is for like this little $50, like pink lawnmower uh-huh. and it's, and it's very wimpy. And, uh, and, and when she 
clicks to buy it, the screen makes a little sound effect and goes, meow. <laughs> okay. So uh-huh. then, then they watch an ad for this giant, uh, this giant scary lawnmower with voiceover by Hulk Hogan uh-huh. saying like, this thing is going to just like declare war on your lawn and stuff uh-huh. like that. And then like the gnomes are just like transfixed and then they click on it and it goes meow. <laughs> like it is so, it is so stupid. Yeah. There's no reason for it to say meow except it's just a payoff. It's a manlier <laughs> version of the other thing. And it's the, it's, the like the yeah the only funny thing in that movie but boy it's it, it was inspired oh, i love that um anyway okay sorry uh okay so moving on uh it's me now right yep okay so in uh my class we watched uh viva savi the jean-luc godard film uh as you know i've never never been a big fan of godard mm. um this is only, but this is only the third film of his that I've seen. Uh, I like Breathless well enough. I respect elements of Band of Outsiders, and then this film once again I also respect because he's telling a story in twelve chapters, and he seems to be approaching it from an almost voyeuristic standpoint at times, like shooting some stuff from afar. Uh, the very first of these chapters, you see this uh the main character and her boyfriend and they're sitting like at the not at a bar but like you know at the at the counter of of like a diner and you only ever see like the backs of their heads uh because mm-hmm. he's filming from behind them and occasionally they'll turn their heads and so you see like you know a quarter of their face or something like that and it seems very much like somebody sitting elsewhere in the diner listening in on somebody else's conversation. So there's a quality there that I think is interesting. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's a film that I, that I respect in what he is trying to do, but as tends to happen, I don't really care about what's going on. I don't really sympathize with the main character. Um, not that that necessarily matters that much. Um, you know, you don't have to sympathize with everybody, but, uh, but you do have to, feel invested in what's going on. And I didn't really. Um, and I think that's a big part of what I don't really respond to about him is I feel like he, he tells character, tells stories about characters that are a little bit distant, maybe by choice and, and that's fine, but it just is hard for me to latch onto it. I, I always respect what he's doing, but I seldom enjoy it. So if you're a fan of Godard, if you're a fan of French new wave, I think you'll probably enjoy it. Um, I didn't really. Uh, I haven't seen that one, um, but I, I am a fan. Um, all right. I watched on Monday um, the new uh, collaboration between Lawrence's Francis and Jennifer, oh, Red right. Sparrow. Okay. Um, and I think it's a, I, I, I've always been a Lawrence, uh, Francis Lawrence fan. Um, uh and I think that this is uh, continues his general tradition of making good movies, mm-hmm. but it is, it's hard for me to recommend. It's, um, I don't know, uh, because I, um, because I tend to avoid trailers. I don't know what other people were expecting out mm-hmm. of the movie, uh, or are expecting. Um, it's not really an action movie. Um, really at all. It has, a lot more in common um, with 
something like girl with a dragon tattoo than it does with something like atomic blonde. Right. Um, even though it does eventually have a very, eventually it has a very traditional spy, you know, uh, espionage, double cross type storyline, um, that I like, but it has a whole setup that is about much like girl with a dragon tattoo is it's about sort of, a her character gets raped as sort of an inciting incident for everything. And, um, the movie, I think is trying to, and I, you could say succeeding. I don't know. You know, there's only so far I can guess in terms of not being a sexual assault survivor myself. Mm. Like I can guess that, you know, this seems respectful or this seems exploitative. I think the movie has a balance of things that felt both ways. Um, But some of that exploitation, I think this is where, you know, I talk about something like I hated Suburbicon right. movie that I think had, you know, heart in the right place, but completely misguided or clumsy execution. This is me. I think that also has its heart in the right place. I think it's execution is it. I think it's very intentional in that it's, uh, I think the, the, uh, the exploit, the ex- exploitative elements of it, especially the whole, the, the, the part before uh i don't know we all the all, all the all the critics apparently got a we got an email you know quote unquote from francis lawrence hmm. asking us not to reveal too much of the plot oh, all right. um so i'm not sure uh what francis lawrence would be okay with me saying but um the 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 whole sequence before she like enters the field as a her whole training sequence is full of uh, exploitation and some really unsettling some stuff that I found unsettling that I think unfortunately I've seen in a couple of other critics talk about the movie in terms of being sexy, which I think is hmm. that was not my experience just because yeah. there's nudity and sex in a movie does not make it sexy. I think a lot of it is um, traumatic and it's sort of causing her to relive her trauma, but also the, uh, there are certain people in the film who would prefer that she distance herself and sort of disembody to use the word that Charlie Ramping's character uses in the movie to inure herself mm-hmm. um, from her own body and from the trauma that was visited upon it. Um, but of course it's also visited upon her uh, mind. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like I did this in my review too. I'm being very heavy about the movie because that's what I mostly took away from it. Right. But it also is a spy movie. Like it has all kinds of like regular spy type stuff. Um, it didn't look like a fun movie. It looked, yeah. you know, there are spy movies that are like, Oh, fun James Bond. Yeah. And then there's like, eh, this is a lib- uh, more John Le Carre. Like where this is much like, more. Okay. Yeah. I think I did. Um, uh, I know I did my my initial tweet reaction, jokey tweet reaction was that Red Sparrow is John Le Carre's the girl with the dragon tattoo. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, uh, but um, yeah, I think it's also, but it's you know, it's Francis Lawrence. So uh, from an image point of view uh, or visual point of view, it's uh, fantastic to look at. It has there's a lot of grandeur, but also a lot of uh, deep, if not particularly nuanced emotion. I think characters in Francis Lawrence's movies tend to like they have, they tend to have one or two emotions, but they have a lot of, uh, they have them in in great quantity, um, which I think in the wrong hands could be really dumb, but I think he, uh, makes it something a little more mythic 
you know, like almost like they're characters from the pantheon of Greek gods who are sort of yeah. defined by one or two things. And that's what they did. I think that's kind of how the characters work in his movies. And this one's no exception. I will say this, um, uh, now it's BP's time. And so we've been yeah. talking about the, the Bruce McGill and the insider award for, uh, best performance under 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, Mary Louise Parker is in this movie. Hey, all right. And, um, one of the first after the movie, after the screening, I was talking to uh, Aaron Newworth, um, and one of the first things he said about Mary Louise Parker, uh, she's up for a McGill, right? <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's people are thinking of things in that way, uh, but she absolutely is. I would say, I mean, it's early in the year, obviously, mm-hmm. but uh, Mary Louise Parker would be my front runner for the award. Uh, there's a great on. Um, Oh, what was it? I think it was vulture.com. Um, a writer named Hunter Harris wrote about how, um, Mary Lee Parker, like, uh, basically shows up and for 10 minutes, red sparrow stops being a movie about Jennifer Lawrence's character. And it's yeah. just, uh, she's just, she just shows up her characters drunk off her ass and just like, doesn't give a shit about what's happening in the story that we're invested in. And it just becomes a different movie for 10 minutes. Uh, and it's a really, um, uh, fun is maybe the wrong word, but it's a, uh, it is kind of a delight. This, yeah. this scene. Uh, I love Mary Louise Parker. All right. Um, next up. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. I've talked, Sorry, I have, I have some water. I've been talking. Oh, my gosh. Um, now, I've talked about how, because of my weird, like, rules on when stuff comes out. Okay. That sometimes, like last year, you know. You my just num- saw your favorite film of, like, five years ago. No, no, no. Uh, no, this is my favorite. But I'm okay. saying, you know, like, last, what, 2016, La La Land was my favorite when we recorded. But since, it's been supplanted by two different things. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't always happen that it's, like the number one, but sometimes stuff gets slotted in. Um, and I, but it doesn't usually happen this soon. Okay. But, um, uh, now the, uh, foreign language film Oscar Mm -hmm. works more along my lines. Yeah. So a movie that came out in his home country in 2017 is nominated, even though it didn't come out here until 2018. Anyway, the point of this all is that I saw foreign language film, uh, nominee from Hungary called on body and soul. Okay. Uh, it's available on Netflix. Um, and it would absolutely have made my top 10, <laughs> um, movies of the year. It's, uh, and it also, I mean, it's great. There's a way you can describe this movie in which I don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. Okay. Let me, let me try, uh, that, uh, it is a, uh, movie about a, um, a lonely disabled man and a woman with autism okay. or Asperger's, I would say, who, uh, find unlikely romance while they work in a slaughterhouse. Uh, it sounds really cute, right? Mm, up until the end there. Okay. Okay. Um, but that, that still sounds like that kind of like indie cute. You know what sure. I'm saying? I um, mean, I guess Marty was a butcher, <laughs> so it could be um, like that. But, uh, this movie is not cute. Um, it's also not, it's actually, it's beautiful to look at and it's very still. Um, and the two lead performances are, are, are terrific. Um, but, it's also way weirder than it sounds Mm -hmm. um, by that description, because the main hook of the movie is that, so there's a, this guy that, so that's an, an abattoir or whatever, uh, a slaughterhouse in, in Hungary. Um, And uh, the guy is uh, in an administrative position. And then the, the woman is a recent hire and she's a quality inspector. She 
mm-hmm. inspects all the meat as it, after it's been cut up. Um, and, uh, because of a series of events that are entertaining, but I don't need to go into all else. You let, let you, um, discover them when you watch the movie, they end up having to do everyone at the plant or at the slaughterhouse has to undergo a psychiatric exam. Okay. And, um, the psychiatric the psychiatrist thinks that these two who she, whom she saw separately are playing a prank on her because it turns out they both had the exact same dream. And then we realize that they are both every night dreaming that they are deer and they're, running around the woods together, but they're actually both having the same dream every night. Um, this is also uh, a very funny movie. Um, there's th- his scene with that psychiatrist is hilarious in a, I think you could call it like comedy of awkwardness or cringe comedy or whatever, but I think it, um, it doesn't lean into that. It plays it very humanistically, but at the beginning of his psychiatric exam, the psychiatrist, um, catches him looking at her breasts and makes a comment about it. And then he's so thrown off and embarrassed by it that he becomes convinced that all of the questions that she's asking are designed to punish him for it. (laughs) And he starts getting mad at her because he's like, can we just start, start the regular exam now? But these are just the questions. It's a very funny scene. Um, there's also, Oh, another thing I should mention, um, by the way, this movie is not for the squeamish, okay. the, the slaughterhouse stuff. Uh, there's, there's a, the, the thing at the end of the movie, it doesn't say no animals were harmed in this movie. It says something like something like no animals were harmed that wouldn't have been harmed anyway. Right. Cause right. they shot, they shot uh, the, the director, um, shot essentially documentary footage, although it's very, you know, um, beautifully composed documentary type footage of the actual slaughter and the actual, uh, dismemberment of of cattle um it's pretty gross stuff i don't doubt it yes there's a lot of blood in the in this movie um and then i don't even it goes uh, other places that i didn't expect that had me watching most of the last 10 minutes of the movie with my hand over my mouth um and and the whole time i'm really am pulling for these two crazy kids to get together yeah uh, it's, it's a really, really beautiful movie. This woman, uh, who directed it, um, Hungarian woman, I'm not going to try to, uh, remember her name off the top of my head. Let me, um, uh, Ildiko and Yede. The only other thing she's, she hasn't made a movie in forever. Apparently the only other thing I've seen was a 1989 movie called my 20th century that, uh, uh that oh, wow. we had at my, um, the video store I worked at in Chicago, I rented it, uh, which is, I remember just being like a black and white movie that takes place on a train with like two twin sisters. Maybe I can't, I don't remember that much about it, but I do remember liking it. Uh, and so this is, that was the only other thing I've seen from her, but on body and soul it's on Netflix. I will say I need to fucking Netflix, man. Fucking Netflix. Okay. Just let me watch the fucking credits. It drives me oh, yeah. fucking yeah. insane. It's so disrespectful to my experience of the movie. It's disrespectful to the people whose names are in the fucking credits and there's no way to turn it off. You can't turn off post play. You can turn off the autoplay of the next episode when you're watching a series, Yeah, which I've done. Obviously I've done that, but post play in general, you can't turn it off. It drives me fucking crazy. Yeah. I already, this is the, I already subscribe. <laughs> yeah. You're not getting any more money because I decided to check out altered carbon. Like, <laughs> Let me spend a couple 
minutes sitting and thinking about the movie I just saw instead of two seconds after the <laughs> credits start going, Hey asshole, here's something else. It drives me fucking crazy every time. It honestly, like it Mars, especially when I watch something that I think is this beautiful and this affecting. Yeah. And then to not even have a second to sit with the movie. Yeah. And then bam, it's there's a new trailer. I hate it so much. What do you think about this new Chris Rock special? (laughs) Yeah, it's almost as though Netflix just does not respect the viewing experience. (laughs) Yeah, just there needs to be an option. I need to be able to opt out of all post-play and auto-play features. I I don't understand why I can't. Like I said, you already have my money every month. You're not getting any more money. But they don't have your click, and I'm sure... Anytime it rolls over to the next thing where it's like, hey, uh, watch this. You want to watch things? Here's this. Uh Uh, And you might click on it. But uh, but it doesn't matter if I click on it or not because they're not getting any more money from me by me clicking on it. No, but they get information about you, which means they get information about, and the more information they have, the more they can tailor their programming and all that sort of thing. Well, here's some information about me. I want to watch the fucking credits. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if there were a button that said that, that'd be great. <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, the film is over. Would you like to watch the fucking credits? <laughs> uh, next for me is uh, Annihilation, so we can keep we can keep going with you. Um, well, no, then you should do your next one. Oh, should I? Anyway, so they're not ending with you doing two, so we can keep okay. it balanced at two, one, two, one, right? Okay. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> we don't need to talk about this in the mic, but I guess. Okay, so the other day, um, I this happens every once in a while. Um, it was like 11 p.m., and I had a lot of stuff to do for school the next day, and then I accidentally watched Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> um, yeah, like, all of, like all of it. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, well, shoot. I mean, I can watch some of Silence of the Lambs. Exactly. That is, I, I got the Criterion uh, version mm-hmm. for my birthday, um, and I was curious to see what the transfer looked like, because I'm dumb, and I thought I could watch some of Silence of the Lambs. Uh-huh. But as tends to happen, uh, I was like, well, I'm just going to watch until this scene. It's like, well, I mean, I saw that scene, so obviously I'm just... I want to see the first appearance of uh, Buffalo Bill. So it's like, okay, well, I saw that, but I want to get to Goodbye Horses, which, oh, that's really late in the film. Um, And and then you watch the whole thing. And, you know, as you know, I was always very uh, resistant to Silence of the Lambs in favor of Manhunter, which Mm -hmm. I still like. I think I still prefer Manhunter to Silence of the Lambs. Uh, But Silence is so watchable. I mean, it is nuts (laughs) how a film that is as grisly Mm -hmm. as that. I mean, I guess it speaks to its value as pulp uh, and maybe a little bit schlocky in certain ways uh, It that a film that, that deals with some pretty heavy stuff um, can be can you can return to it over and over again casually you know seven is not a film that i can return to casually right yeah um nor is manhunter but uh but also it's just jonathan demi just has such a way with pacing and 
making things enjoyable while not, I don't think comp, I don't think he's compromising the nature of the characters or the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this might be the first time that I noticed how often we get Clarice's POV. Um, we get a lot of mm. people staring right at the camera as they're talking to her. Like, I think I knew, I definitely knew that with Lecter, yeah. but I don't think I realized like her, her roommate, Dr. Chilton, uh, uh, Jack Crawford, like at some point, everybody that huh. talks to her, we get a POV, we get her POV of them looking right at us, um, which, you know, is, is always a bold thing to do. And it definitely speaks to whose perspective this film is from. Uh, and so, and that's the thing I've seen the film countless times, but this is the first time I actually noticed that. So, all right. Um, I okay. I'll say this. Um, no, outside of seeing something at a festival, the lead time on a press screening usually isn't more than a couple months max. Max, yeah. Um, but I saw a movie that's not coming out till July. Oh wow! Uh, but because apparently it's playing South by was it the sequel to Europa Report. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's uh, that's play- a joke for nobody. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's playing South by. So I guess they did some press screening. So I saw uh, you were you know Lauren Greenfield made the Queen of Versailles documentary. You oh, and yeah, I both yeah. saw. So her new one is called Generation Wealth, which is nominally about lots of people like the Queen of Versailles, which is what this. Lauren Greenfield as a photographer and documentarian has been, she's been studying wealth the world over her entire, it's what her, the entire, uh, uh, focus of her career has been. And mm-hmm. so this movie is kind of an encapsulation of all of that. She goes, she, she goes back and interviews people that she's photographed throughout the years or people that she has shot for other documentaries. Um, uh, and it's just sort of an overview of, late 20th century, early 21st century wealth all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but really it's much, much more of a personal essay, which was kind of surprising to me in a pleasant way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it's, um, you know, by going through her history, um, she's seeing in the way, you know, just looking at the ways that she is, um, like these people, cause her interest comes from the fact apparently that she, you know, her, both her parents went to Harvard. They were never like super rich. They were rich enough or had enough money to send her to a nice high school in, in, in Los Angeles here, uh, where she went to school with some very rich kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically that the fascination with, with, uh, rich people, uh, started there and has lasted her entire, her entire career. Um, and so, uh, I think, I think it's for the best that this is more of a personal essay than an expose. Um, yeah. because, uh, she's looking much like she did with queen of Versailles. Like, uh, I mean, there's some, uh, some pretty shocking stuff in queen of Versailles, but I think it's interested in the woman herself yeah. first. And I think that's what ends up happening here is that she's interested in these, these these people because she's telling it through her own personal lens mm. uh it's quite good if you hope you remember to see it in july when it comes out <laughs> yeah. i think this is the longest i think before this every once in a while there'll be something like i think the last one i remember was this go back to like 2012 or whatever a more i saw like four months because before it came out mm. uh in the u.s um but this is i think the longest lead time i've ever had on a movie that it wasn't something i had 
wasn't a festival screening, but I guess it, this is essentially a festival. It's a, it's a pre South by okay. screening, which sometimes we get like, we get those a lot like, um, in September, that'll be like pre Toronto screenings, but then usually the stuff that plays at Toronto that is doing the pre screenings ends up coming out by the end of the year anyway. So it's not, uh, anyway, this is shop talk, but, uh, um, that's, it. uh, all right. And then I watched on, uh, uh, on Filmstruck. Now, Letterboxd has this listed as the madness of youth, but everywhere else calls it everything goes wrong. It's okay. a 1960 Japanese film directed by Saijin Suzuki, who's best known for branded to kill. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one is not, uh, it does eventually have some violence in it, but it does not marked by the violence that I think people expect from Sajin Suzuki. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not crazy. Yeah, <laughs> um, of course it's, uh, it's, uh, first off it's like 70 minutes long. So, you know, uh, I'm, I'm there for that. I can watch mm-hmm. that, uh, in, I can watch that in just over an hour. Um, <laughs> it, it, it takes place, uh, in, I mean, it takes place in 1960. Um, uh, uh, Japan and it's very much about the sort of post-war generation gap that you, the characters that we're mostly with who are like 19, 20 years old uh, were alive during world war two. And of course during the bombing and everything, but um, have come of age with that in the rear view, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their parents are much more scarred by these experiences except what the movie eventually comes to is that they're not actually that different, not actually as different as they think. Like a lot of the, the kids activities has to have to do with, uh, drugs and very reckless sex. Um, and, uh, some crime like petty crime. Uh, and, but then the main, the main, um, character in the story is his his big conflict is that he his mom for years since he was a kid has been uh uh, his dad so his dad died in the war and his mom has been uh having an affair with a married man Mm -hmm. um a wealthy married man for years um and that's his major conflict uh that he um uh hates this guy even though this guy kind of co-raised him or at least like financially Mm -hmm. took care of him his entire life uh but yeah, it's mostly, it's like running around drinking, having sex. Um, and then sometimes, uh, there's uh, some of the sex definitely goes too far, um, with some of the young women. Um, and then eventually, yeah, some violence, but all of it flies by the camera's always, always moving. Um, it's shot, uh, in, in scope, uh, and sometimes, um, I, th- I think sometimes and I, I like his use of scope. Um, you don't, uh, I think when, when, when a camera, uh, so scope, I think looks great for a pan, right? Yeah. Because it's long, a tilt in scope sometimes looks weird, but he does it a bunch. Um, of course he in, in, in the movie. <laughs> and also he sometimes frames close-ups almost like he's saying, uh, yeah, this frame is too short. Like he's framing close-ups that are too close. Um, uh, like the cutting off of heads, uh, the tops of heads and stuff. Um, but he's doing, he's clearly doing it intentionally just cause I don't think he's just, he just always seems like a restless filmmaker who like, uh, wants every, every shot and every scene to be interesting. Like he's just allergic to being boring. Yeah. Uh, and so it's exciting. There's jazz music, the entire, the entire movie. um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really fun, fast read, uh, read, uh, watch, uh, and it's on Filmstruck. All right. What's next for you? 
Oh, okay. Uh, this is a rewatch, and it's a very, very soon after I rewatched it before. Okay. Um, when I watched it in December, I did not expect that I was going to have to watch it again for class. Okay. Um, and it is Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away. Oh. Um, we're talking about animation in the class that I'm uh, TAing for. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with watching Spirited Away twice in a couple of months. Um, but I don't have a whole lot else to talk about except that it's just... It is so random in 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 from one scene to the next. Now, of course, there's an Alice in Wonderland quality that means that like it's going to be a little bit episodic, and so we go from one circumstance to another to another, and so it's not as though this idea is unprecedented. But you know, there are moments when like. Chihiro or Sen, I guess, as she is called at, at one point, like, uh, <laughs> listen to what I'm about to say. <laughs> I had to go. F- I, okay. So I started as like, oh, she, uh, squishes this, uh, this little slug thing. Uh, and there's, and it causes bad luck. And I thought like, oh, cause the squid thing gets spat out along with this, uh, cursed, seal uh-huh. uh gets spat out by this dragon that she has given this uh, weird little like uh, uh what do you uh, like this little ipecac type pill uh-huh. that she got from when she unplugged the water spirit uh that looked all muddy and gross because it was so heavily polluted I had to go all the way back there <laughs> to a water spirit and a uh-huh. dragon and a cursed seal also that I could talk about her squishing this slug with her foot and then somebody says, oh, it's bad luck. <laughs> so put your index fingers together and then I will chop them in half with my hand and that will fix the bad luck. <laughs> That's nuts. Everything I just said is nuts. And everything... And of course, I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of it ha- is rooted in, in you know Japanese folklore or something like that, which is fine. But what's what's really crazy about it, and the kids kind of laughed at times, uh-huh. not didn't laugh at it, but laughed the way I do, which is like it is just one weird thing, one crazy thing after another. But because it is done with such grace, yeah, and such beauty and such sincerity by Miyazaki. Um, I don't really question it only, but like, think of everything I just said. Mm -hmm. You'd be like, this is is the person like on drugs or are they just really inconsistent in their tone? Uh, but it's a consistent tone. It's a consistently beautiful and heartfelt film that I don't mind all these strange elements and jumping from one to the next. Uh, so yeah. Uh, listeners, I'm sure you've already seen Spirited Away, but every it just it's always so it's always such a joy to watch. All right, um, whew, let me brace myself here. Okay, here we go. I saw Eli Roth's Death Wish remake. Um, All right, and it's it's not just that it's. Compl- I forgot that he made it. Yeah, it's not just that it's completely insane that there's a staunchly pro-gun movie coming out right now. <laughs> I don't mean in the subtext. Like, this is a pro-gun movie. Yeah. Um, that's insane. But it's also just... Uh, wh- 
when did Bruce Willis stop caring? Oh, a while ago. Yeah, because if you think about his, like, you know, his funny off-kilter energy in Die Hard, and you look at how he is sleepwalking through Death Wish. Yeah. He's... I mean, the movie's I was not, wondering, like, is he even a draw anymore? I don't even know. Yeah. Um, I guess I, we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Um, but, like, I found myself... Even though the screenplay is... Everything about this movie seems... Almost everything seems lazy. I'll talk about the one thing I liked uh, in a second. Um, but even with the lazy screenplay, I found myself feeling sorry for people like Elizabeth Shue and Vincent D'Onofrio acting in scenes with Bruce Willis because he's not giving them anything. Yeah. It, it, it was, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a lazy movie. The one thing I liked uh, that you won't, when, if you see it, which yeah, I probably won't. Yeah. But you won't forget it's Eli Roth when you see it because he does, despite it not being a horror movie, he finds plenty of opportunities to get real gory. And sure. that was one thing I actually kind of appreciated was him bringing that horror, horror, uh, aspect to some of the, some of the violence, some of the, even though it's like, you know, you know the story, it's a guy shooting people. He still finds like a few creative kills. One of them is given away in the trailer. If you, if you saw the trailer, but, um, I have not. Uh, yeah. Um, and so there is some pretty, some pretty gory, uh, gory stuff, but yeah, I would say 2012 is the last time I saw Bruce Willis care twice in that year. Moonrise kingdom. Yeah. And looper. And even okay. in Looper, he's still doing the dour thing. But you can tell he's yeah. invested in what he is doing. Yeah, Moonrise Kingdom is definitely good. Yeah, um, and he's he's surprisingly good in it. Yes, um, but I don't remember the last time. And last thing I'll say though about um, Death Wish is, man, I you know look, I'm as white as they come, but white people, we why don't we understand how great Mike Epps is? Oh yeah. Mike Epps is awesome. And he has in quote unquote, like black movies, he's a, a star and he gets to like yeah. run away with the movie and be the great, like comic relief. And then he shows up in quote unquote white movies as nothing like he was he, good in the hangover. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, he's not, I mean, he's not in it very much. Yeah. And then in the hangover three, they bring him back just to kill him, which was unfortunate. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I guess spoilers for the hangover part three, you would have seen it by now if you were going to, um, um, but yeah, in death wish, Mike Epps just plays like, cause Bruce Willis character is a surgeon and Mike Epps just plays another surgeon who has like two small scenes. It's like, do you not realize the energy and charisma and the laughs yeah. that you have here? Um, but yeah, yeah. Well, white people, I guess we just don't deserve Mike Epps. We didn't watch the surprisingly funny uncle buck TV show that they made, oh. uh, that lasted like half a season. Yeah. Um, uh, where he played Uncle Buck, uh, obviously. I mean, uh, he plays Norton in The Honeymooners to Cedric the Entertainer's... Oh, I never uh, saw that, but I bet that's great. Ralph Cramden. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Th- everything about it is actually pretty delightful. Yeah, I really like Mike Epps. We, you know, we should... People should pay attention. But okay. I guess, yeah, I mean, he's, doing, he's doing fine. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. All right, and then uh, finally I saw a movie, a sequel... 17 years, uh, 16 years in the making, um, a documentary sequel. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, now I'm forgetting the name of the, so it was a documentary that I saw, uh, back when we were in college, I saw it probably at the, the, the landmark, mm-hmm. uh, theater called rivers and tides. 
I, I remember that. It's something Andy Goldsworthy. It's a documentary about an, act, an artist named Andy Goldsworthy who sort of makes sculptures out of nature that are by design intended to be fleeting because wind or water or whatever mm-hmm. washes them away. Um, and uh, now the same director, 16 years later or, later or whatever, uh, has returned to make Leaning Into Wind, Leaning Into the Wind, okay. uh, which is just an another documentary about him and it's um uh it's it's brief it's full of beautiful uh his art is abs- is absolutely stunning this guy andy goldsworthy um and uh thomas R- Reitel, what is his uh thomas Reitelsheimer is the director and he's uh apparently mostly works as a cinematographer and you can tell it's a beautiful movie to look at the parts where Andy goldsworthy is talking about his art are kind of like i just get get back to more of the yeah more of him like doing crazy stuff like he um he 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 fi- he'll find a bunch of leaves that are the same color and then like essentially when he's done you'd think oh he painted that log no he'd like got the leaves wet and covered hmm. a section of a log so now it's yellow yeah um uh, it's, it's very cool. The coolest part, he builds a thing inside, inside a building where he cuts down or takes, I don't think he cuts down trees. He takes trees that have already fallen down. So it takes these big, huge, um, tree trunks that have like, uh, Y bends or not bends, mm-hmm. whatever, um, the branches in them. And he covers them in clay and then positions them in an indoor room. That's also covered in clay. So, it's a completely you can tell it's organic but it's also everything is smooth in a way that is very unnatural mm-hmm. you know because uh, it's all covered in clay in the yeah. same uh, same color and same consistency and then thomas riedelsheimer uh puts a camera in there um and does a uh very sophisticated time lapse of the clay drying and cracks appearing in it uh and so you just see the the this thing that is all one thing suddenly regain texture um as as all the as all the cracks show up hmm. throughout the room and, and throughout these branches it's so it's so much cool stuff um comes out uh next week maybe the week after i don't know uh leaning into the wind is the name of it all right and that is me done with movies you have a movie i do um i finally got around to seeing lee unkrich's and adrian molina's coco i know uh yeah um, talked about it off oh, mic yeah sort of off. sort of um but yeah and i as tends to happen i when i saw the trailer for it it didn't look really that interesting at all and it looked like kind of a standard not even pixar but just kind of a standard animated film like with really broad humor and all of that um and a pretty conventional type of story excuse me but um but when I finally saw it, it's like, oh no, there's a real specificity to the story itself, to the setting, and then what it is, and the 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 backdrop, I guess, which is, uh, you know, the the Day of the Dead, and it really seems interested in engaging with that holiday and the iconography of it, as opposed to just like exploiting it because eh, sure mm-hmm. why not um hmm. 
And so uh, on that level, I really appreciated it. And I think the story worked pretty well. It's in some ways it's a little bit conventional, but I think the characters and I say, especially the voice acting uh, I'd say most, especially by the, the kid uh, Mm -hmm. who hadn't really done anything before uh, really got me uh, invested. And, and also visually, I think it's really beautiful. I think it, it, uses that iconography uh really well in a in in a very creative way um a really one could say garish use of color but as it should be um so yeah i i liked the movie quite a bit uh you know it's funny i'm um because I have ADD or whatever i'm looking at uh, my twitter mentions right now uh and as you're talking about how much you liked um coco our friend jape man uh, says it's uh, he's watching it right now and says it's boring and predictable. <laughs> Jay, man, you're boring and predictable. <laughs> what do you think of that? All right. Um, you had some TV to talk about. Yeah. So, um, I, the other day I just threw this on, it was on Netflix. Um, I don't think it's, a, it's, it was a series created for Netflix. I think it's probably BBC or something like that. It's called myths and monsters. Mm. And, it is, you know, really hokey in a lot of ways, but it's essentially a, a series that delves into certain myths uh, from various cultures. And what it does, it's really fascinating. It goes, it goes by topic. So, you know, one is war, one is love, hmm. and just expl- one of the, is the idea of like heroes and villains. And it will use one, it'll latch onto one specific story, but then it will also talk about the roots of that story being from an entire other culture that is also exploring this stuff. And it just talks about how over the centuries uh, and over the millennia, um, all of these different cultures have come to like kind of embrace the same type of thing. And then they will hear stories from another culture and then add their own thing to it. Um, but that they're all exploring these universal ideas of love, war, um, and that sort of thing. And it really is just fascinating on that level. Um, obviously, it talks a lot about you know Joseph Campbell and Hero's Journey mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But, uh, but it also, uh, you know, there, there are certain bits of folklore that I'm more familiar with than others. And when it talks about the roots of those... And sometimes it goes really in depth and sometimes it's just kind of this glancing mention. Uh, but I was very, and I'm not done with it yet, but I'm very happy I, that I've watched what I have watched. And I feel like, you know, if you're a writer, if you're a student of history or whatever it is, I think you would enjoy it quite a bit. It's not necessarily groundbreaking, but it's, uh, consistently interesting. Uh, okay. And then, uh, for my class, we did watch an episode of black mirror. I've never seen the show. I've heard great things about it. Um, and I've heard such great things that I assumed it would be overrated, uh, somehow because I am an asshole. But, uh, I've only seen the original couple series in the Christmas special. Okay. I haven't seen anything since it became a Netflix show, which they've done. They've done two seasons, I guess now. Uh, that sounds right to me. Yes. So I don't know what, what, which one you watched. I saw San Junipero. I haven't seen that. That's the newer stuff. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, it was really good. Um, and it was good in a way that I wasn't expecting and it kicks things off. 
uh, as this 1980s show, and then everything, and it really bothered me because everything about it is so 80s. Like the fashion, you know, there's a movie theater and there's a poster for the Lo- the Lost Boys, and these characters are driving in this car and it's playing a, a song, and they even say like, uh, you know, the biggest hit of 1987 or whatever. And then they look in a window and there's a bunch of TVs showing, you know, Max Headroom or whatever. And I just thought like, oh, and then and I just thought like, yes, okay, we get it. It's the 80s. And I was like, I, I lived in the 80s. Mm-hmm. It wasn't this all yeah. the time. Uh, but then, and so that really bothered me. And I thought like, wow, this is really obvious. Um, but then the show reveals that that's kind of the point. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I thought it was really interesting in the way that it reveals things slowly, but surely, um, about halfway through, if you're familiar with sci-fi at all, mm-hmm. halfway through, you're like, okay, I, I see where they're going. And sure enough, I was correct. But there's really great acting in it, and I I did enjoy it quite a bit, even if it was a little bit predictable uh, eventually. So, okay. Well, my favorite, real quick, is the one, um, it's called The Entire History of You, uh, and it stars uh, Toby Kebbell, Kebbell, however you say his name. Um, That one's really good. And then, yeah, the Christmas special with John Hamm and Rafe Spall is uh, one of the bleakest things I've ever seen in my life. Okay. Uh, all right. Um, let's talk about the amazing race. Let's do it. And let's talk about, I was so mad going into this episode. I was like talking with my wife, like, all right, this is like bringing up some psychological shit with me. Okay. But the fact that the, the three, what I'm calling the jock teams were teaming up against what I'm going to call the nerd team. Yeah. Like filled me with rage. Like I wanted I I normally don't like to root for people to fail, but I wanted them to. I wanted a broken ankle or a lost passport. I want, yeah. I I was like weirded out with myself by how much I wanted these assholes to fail yeah. for conspiring against the nerds, and it's clearly just tied into how I felt as a kid sure. that like all the cool kids were like had secrets from me and didn't want me to be a part of their their club and I'm clearly still sore about that in some way. Um, but, uh, I think the episode ended up being very good. The, the finale. It did. I think back on it and I get so stressed and so discouraged because, okay. This is what I'm about to say is is really dark, but you'll know what I mean. If Henry winds up killing himself, (laughs) CBS has blood on its hands because they pointed out that he had it and and then changed it. Yeah. Like, I mean, I understand why. Of course, I understand why you do that. Yeah. But like if I'm him, of course, Uh he, he he couldn't have possibly known until that moment and when he was under- watching it, yeah, you're saying, and I'm sure he was watching it with Evan. And at that moment, it's oh, <laughs> we could have had a million dollars, and if I had simply said check, uh, yeah, then we've got it. I think, like, if if it were I'd me, like to think they're <laughs> emotionally mature enough to go to at this point laugh it off. Because here's the thing to me, and maybe this is where you and I differ. Okay. The the million dollars is not the reason you're doing everything. 
It's no. traveling the world together and seeing all this stuff right. and being part of the race and the game. Like, but you do want to you want to win. Yeah, but it's not everything. And well, I reckon money isn't that. everything, Tyler. Winning and money is most things. <laughs> um, but that's why I never liked, uh, or, or not never, but why I would, I would get so frustrated with uh, Connor, um, one of the indie yeah, guys, yeah. because like with the crabs thing, anytime he wasn't immediately good at something. Yeah. He wanted his solution was to quit and give up. Yeah. I hated that. Oh boy, I can relate to that all day long. Oh no. Um, me. And that's the thing is just like you know, maybe not everybody uh is so deeply aware of their regrets as I am. <laughs> but if I'm Henry, it's just like, ah, oh, shoot, I didn't do it fa- I didn't get it fast enough. Oh, I did and I made this one mistake. Now, of course, with the race, there's a history of people making one mistake and they're out. But this is literally such a small thing, and they could have won. Like that, it's it's that it's a cab drive. They didn't get in the wrong cab or anything like that. Or it's just like, and it's not like they were miles behind. It's literally, if I had simply said, "Can I get a check?" Mm-hmm. If I had simply done that, we would have won. Like that. Like losing by that is so stressful me wow. stressful for me to think about that I wish CBS had not pointed it out. Huh? I didn't. I didn't think it was that big a deal. I have to say. Oh man! Like yeah. I literally, <laughs> I literally looked Henry up on Facebook. I didn't friend him or I didn't yeah. message him, but I looked him up so that I could like. Because I wanted to message him and be like, hey, it's fine, man. Like, I'm sure you're frustrated, but you know what? You've got love in your life. Like, yeah. Just assuming that if if it were me, it would be not merely one of the, uh, the greatest regret of my life, but it's a public one. Now, thankfully, like, because I, I literally went to message boards to see what uh-huh. people were saying, and it was nothing but sympathy. It was nothing but people being like, oh, I feel so bad for Henry. It, nobody, thankfully, was saying like, oh, such a smart guy, actually, right. you know, messing yeah. up. And I was very happy about that as well. But, uh, but yeah, so it's not as though the show is tainted. You know, nobody did anything gross or despicable except, you know, the, the teaming up, which... Which isn't even despicable. It's just like, it just, it just it bothered, rubbed me the wrong way. It bothered me, but then Jen pointed out that like Yale didn't really do anything to ingratiate themselves to those three teams. Like, yeah, I guess that's true. Were the brother, if the brothers were still around, then right, like, all right, friends. now we're close yeah. with them. But, uh, yeah. So there is that element. To I wouldn't it. have, uh, tried to be friends with those jack assholes either. Um, right. I think now we're still uncovering stuff with you and with you apparently. Uh, oh, undoubtedly. Yeah. Undoubtedly. Uh, that's very funny. Um, we had a lot wrapped up in Yale. It would appear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was bummed. It's funny. I, I don't know if you remember going back to the first time we talked about this season on movie journal. I, I said my favorite team was big brother mm-hmm. and it's amazing how they methodically took that apart over the course of the season to the point where I really got annoyed with his, uh, his jingoism and her hypocrisy. Um, yeah. to the point where they were, uh, I would have preferred X games of the three teams that finished or even the four teams that finished. I would have preferred X games or Indy big brother ended up becoming my least favorite team in a way. I think, his jingoism was like one episode and I'm willing no, to, it came up three times. 
okay. Yes. I remember the one. There was the first one yeah. in um, San Tropez when she's like, can we move here? And he says, right. not unless they have the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Yeah. Okay. Then there was in Thailand when she was talking about how beautiful the trees were. And he said, I like the trees in America better. Okay. Uh, and then in this episode, when they get off the plane in San Francisco, he says, I can smell that we're in America or something like that. Hmm. Um, which I think that one probably wouldn't have bothered me if it hadn't been for the other right. ones yeah. that he's just like, ref- cause the other two, he's just like refusing to accept the idea that another country could have something to offer. And yeah. that's not, that's not patriotism. And that's it's ignorance. And this is a weird show to be on uh, for that. <laughs> I and honestly think these two did this show not because they care about the amazing race of seeing the world. It's because they lost Big Brother and they had a chance to win something. Oh, undoubtedly. That's why, that's why they did it, and they won, and good for them. Yeah. Um, it's over. Go I'm, I'm a bit more willing to, as, as you know, and as I said before, I'm a, a bit more willing to forgive his jingoism because I'm sure it is a requirement not necessarily a requirement, but I'm sure it is a, a, a sort of a deal you make with yourself if you're going to be in the military. Right. They're yeah. like, I need to, and, and I'm sure it's a hard thing to shed when you get out. Her hypocrisy, on the other <laughs> hand, uh, is a, uh, I'm sure that that is just, just blindness to like, yeah, yeah it, it's a race. What are you going to do? Like, yeah. I, I'm sure much worse things happened on Big Brother. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure. There was a, a lot more cattiness on Big yeah. Brother. And if you so want that, uh, a listener, if you didn't listen to the last movie journal, yeah, I, I don't want to go back into her hypocrisy now. But yeah. We talked about the, it in detail on the last one, or maybe two weeks, two times. Yeah. I can't remember when it was, but yeah. And I think, and and I was rooting against them eventually, partially just because they were such a powerhouse. And I think I kind of like an underdog, not that Yale was much of an underdog. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Uh, those la- like those last four teams were all incredibly strong and that doesn't yeah. always happen. Um, like it, really any of them could have won. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I am a bit bothered by the final task because oh, why? it just, I know it wasn't random, but maybe it just wasn't explained well enough because none of right. the three seemed to really get it. They all see it just whoever happened to get it right and ask for a check at the right time seemed right. to be what I it boiled down yeah, to. Yeah, that's a good point. So um, I liked the uh, find the signs on that street um, yeah. uh, challenge a lot and how multiple, like, two different teams got told by locals, hey, there's something here. Teams keep getting the answer here, yeah. and they both blew them off. They were like, yeah. they're drunk. Yeah. <laughs> and then, Which might be true. Yeah, they yeah. were. Oh, yeah, everyone yeah. was drunk on the street. <laughs> but, like, yeah, I think the uh, X Games said, that guy's drunk. And I think Indy said, yeah, thanks, buddy, or something like that. It just kept going. <laughs> and I do think it's, I think this speaks to something that I like about Yale and something that I like about Henry specifically, that he instinctively said like, Oh, it's right up. You know you're, yeah. what you're looking and for. Then is Evan right yelled at him. She's yeah. Like, Henry, like yeah. I'm sure in any other circumstance, she's like, Oh, I love him. But in this moment, it's like, ah, you're going to lose this for us because you're such a nice person. Yeah. But then, so, yeah, I, that I, I agree with you on that. There's other times that I think he would like when they were in the, um, in the water, getting the balls, I think, there's certain times when things are stressful that Henry just like clams up. He shuts down. No question. It, about yeah, it. yeah. And that was, I was, I was on Evan's side there. I was getting very annoyed. Yeah. Undoubtedly. Does and Evan look like Ivanka Trump? I don't know what Ivanka Trump looks like. How is that possible? 
I assume she's blonde. <laughs> yeah. That's I mean, all even I, I don't. Yeah. I, that's I know all what I've she got. Looks like. I don't know. It's it's a weird thing. I don't think I could tell you what. I think I could I could probably identify Melania. Okay. Uh, it sounds weird, but like up until recently, I've had no reason to know what Ivanka Trump looks like, and I'm also trying to steer clear of politics for the I, most part. Yeah, that's a good so, idea. So it's uh, yeah. Right. I feel kind of bad about that, but I'm fine. Uh, so yeah. Amazing race. I think it was a good season overall. Yeah, I I liked it. But like I said earlier, I like the head to head within this context of this being the like competitors season or whatever. Yeah. I don't know that I want the head to head to become a regular part of the show. Yeah. And then they did it twice all season. So maybe it'll be a forgotten thing. And then they did the partner swap. Oh, then they did the partner swap. yeah, Yeah. Which I that I could see them dropping. Except that it, it can bond teams to other teams, yeah, which, which can be fun. a nice thing. But I could see them keeping the head-to-head because I Don't. think it was very popular. Yeah, I just, I'm okay with teams that are defined by their competitiveness sure. going out like that. Yeah. But if you're not that kind of team, if that's not the construct of the season, yeah. and you end up coming, like, arriving third and then going out yeah uh because of a head-to-head that wouldn't sit well with me in the normal season context yes that is true like when they and survivor does that sometimes where they'll like change something up it's like assholes (laughs) if this had been any other season right i would have won but then you decide you wanted to get cute yeah uh so yeah but uh yeah i'm looking forward to the next one